0: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
1: evening listeners and salut babette i've got a few more salutations salut stephen and salut sheila also salut james because sheila and james told me about charles massey's book which we're going to talk about tonight Uh, they always these are people who I, i know are out there listening um if you can go down to the Clyde Hotel tonight, listeners. I'm saying this at the head of the program because it's for 6.30 tonight. If you can get down there, it's at um, the corner of Carlton and Elgin Streets. and No, Cardigan Street and Elgin Street corner, the Clyde Hotel. Uh, We're BZE is having a trivia night and it'll be great fun. And if you'd like to come down and join us, we'd love to meet you. I've got all red jumpers and red cardigans on. You can see me um, and Andy, I hope, will be there and Kurt... And Erin will be there and um, it'll be fun and we'd love to meet you because you're the listeners. So if you'd like to come down, it's at 6.30 tonight at the Clyde. Now, tonight's show is about rethinking agriculture. We'll talk to Charles Massey who lives on the Monaro High Plains and who wrote a book called Cry of the Reed Warbler. It's actually called Call of the Reed Warbler and... He was at the uh, Sustainable Living Festival. He gave speeches there. Lots of people were very interested. It's about um, how new practices are emerging in agriculture just at the time when climate change is making it all more precarious. Then we'll talk to Professor Richard Eckard, who is the Director of Primary Industries Climate Challenges Centre, I'm very glad they've got a climate challenges centre at Melbourne University and um, we'll ask him how cows can reduce their methane and what new relationships can governments forge with landholders to reduce our national emissions. At about 5.30 we'll call up to New England where Michael Taylor is carrying on the reforestation work of his parents. He's part of a network of a new a um, new generation of regenerative farmers who have biodiversity front and centre, all sorts of diversity and all sorts of new ideas. Now, we city listeners, we might be perhaps more aware of the, the food bowl around the edge of Melbourne and Sydney being gobbled up for suburbs for the very people it's meant to feed. But we uh, we're aware of that and we're aware of um, new trends in food, more people becoming vegetarian or vegan, perhaps, um, new types of dining. But big agriculture is pretty much off our radar, isn't it? And so I'm hoping that we can cover that because it's out of sight, and I think that's where a lot of the emissions could be cut back. Um, out there they produce food for high-end consumers and there's a growing demand in asia for the meat and dairy products that we can export but i want to ask the question is this all at the expense of the global climate beyond zero emissions research proposed alternatives and our panel tonight are all pioneers in rethinking agriculture so we'll go straight to charles um, I hope listeners that you will read this new book uh, Call of the Reed Warbler uh, when Charles spoke at the Sustainable Living Festival lots of people flocked around him to talk and uh, I'd love, love him to share his ideas with you are you there Charles?
2: Yes I am, afternoon Vivian, thanks for having me
1: I'm delighted, well look can you tell us what it's like where you are today?
2: <laughs> well um, we started off with at least a minus minus ten all their house water froze, and um, it wasn't much fun and that 's on top of uh, a pretty good drought that's um covering a lot of new south wales so um but you know we we live in this uh high tableland it 's a beautiful uh austere um, temperate grassland, and um, you take with the good with the bad so that's uh that's even uh, even after that big frost that means you have sunny days and um Uh, rather than droopy weather. So there's worse things.
1: Well, in your years as a a sheep-classing consultant and preparing for this book, I think you travelled many thousands of kilometres and you sat around many a farm kitchen table. Often you heard a story of how disaster had jolted them into new practices. And, look, on this program we've spoken to Colin Sice a couple of times and I went up to Golgong and he told us how he'd lost everything practically in a bushfire and he was in hospital himself. And so he developed something new, which now a lot of people are copying, called pasture cropping. So I know that those big disasters actually do generate new thoughts sometimes. And I'd like you to tell us about someone else who has broken out of the current industrial agricultural mode.
2: Yes, well, look... um I guess uh, when I was doing sheep planting uh, and a couple of hundred plants across every state in Australia, I was travelling long distances, noticing how the landscapes were deteriorating. And, uh, but I also encountered some wonderful regenerative farming, which is where you work with nature, not try and dominate it, and you let nature heal herself, if you like, through self-organising systems. And um, that took me back 40 years after I'd been an undergraduate back to uh, ANU to do a PhD, where I looked at 80 of these innovators and asked the question why they'd changed. And um, as you point out, it was, um, it, was, it was in 60% of the cases, it was some sort of major life shock like coal experienced, burned out by a bushfire. David Marsh, who's one of the leading thinkers in the ecological grazing, as he told me, he's near um, Burua, just um, north of Canberra. He said the mine cracker for him was the 1980s drought, and it was for me it, um, We had old thinking where we tried to fight the drought, if you can imagine fighting nature I ended up in a big debt, knocked the landscape around, and it was after that I realized we had to do something different, as did David and many others so other other factors were um, people poisoning themselves accidentally with chemicals um, health other health issues, marriage breakups. Um, facing bankruptcy, sort of stuff that really cracks your mind open, if you like, to where you realise you've got to think differently.
1: Mm, well, a lot of people are facing drought at the moment and I wonder what did David Marsh do differently and what did you do differently after that?
2: Well, in David's case, he stopped using industrial um, chemicals, fertilisers and, and, and sprays and, and swung straight over to ecological grazing, um, which is based on the, watching what happens with African herds uh, regenerating grasslands. Um, uh, in my case, it was the same. Um, Stop using any industrial fertilisers. We didn't do much spraying, but we stopped that and um, swung over to an ecological approach. And uh, and so it's uh, the innovation's cropping up right uh, across Australia. And, and as you pointed out, um, and if we can discuss later, I mean... Uh, When we look at the fact that you mentioned climate change, we know that uh, our Earth system, our Earth has moved into a whole new geological epoch, which they're calling the Anthropocene, um, Mm. where humans themselves have destabilised it. And it's not just climate. There's about eight or nine Earth systems sustaining this extraordinary um, life situation on Earth, bearing in mind that the conditions for life on Earth were created by life itself. That's why it's a blue-green planet. And the evidence, a lot of evidence shows that the worst aspects of industrial agriculture, you know, fossil fuels and chemicals and all the rest of it, is destabilising the majority of those earth systems. And and I confidently say the flip side of that is a regenerative agriculture that builds carbon and and heals water cycles and all the rest can address um, the Anthropocene issues and um, In fact, I'm now at at that um, Sustainable Living Festival. I I met and now got to know Paul Hawken, who spoke, one of the world leaders, as you know, in the last 30 years in social and environmental change. And he's just um, published a a wonderful book called Drawdown. Um, He edited it where hundreds of scientists have costed all the best methods to draw carbon out of the atmosphere or prevent it going up. And if you add up the six or eight regenerative practices, regenerative agriculture practices, out of those hundreds, um, just call them regenerative agriculture, we are number one by, you know, at least twofold ahead of the next uh, method in drawing carbon out. So that's that's the impact regenerative agriculture
0: can have.
1: Well, I know two things. One is the um, thing that I saw at Colin sizes placed with perennial grasses and no pesticides because all the, there are so many... There's such biodiversity in his grasslands that he says they will eat up each other and and cancel out any um, disease that comes there. But his sheep come and eat the stubble down and then he moves them on and then the next crop comes up and that's pasture cropping. But that's the one I know and I know rotational grazing. We've interviewed quite a few of the people who are doing that, Cell so grazing, but what other pillars are there of regenerative farming?
0: Yes,
2: no, key question. Look, um, there's, there's other mm-hmm. new cropping variants where people are ditching chemicals uh, and industrial fertiliser and switching over to biological methods. So they're now using all sorts of things like worm juice, uh, and this is broad acre stuff where they're spraying out a beautiful uh, biological mixture of, say, worm juice and uh, microbial um, bugs and stuff that come out of compost extract, um, swinging over to sort of more natural fertilisers and uh, healthy kelp mixes and uh, oh, yeah. and stimulating the entire soil. And, and uh, maybe down the track we can just allude to the implications for human health on having healthy soil working again instead of industrial soil. But uh, other methods, agroforestry, you know, world leaders are out of the Opway ranges, just west of Melbourne there and uh, where uh, the innovators said, well, instead of monocultural industrial forestry, lots of chemical, you know, a monoculture, let's ask farmers how they'd like to grow trees on, on their farms. And so that's led to huge diversity of growing stuff and um, stacking in more business enterprises and more social and environmental and econo- you know, economic resilience. Um, and then you've got... Uh, things like permaculture expanding more broadly and, you know, biodynamics, which has been around a long while, and it's sort of based on healthy soil as well. Yeah. So there's there's a range. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think listeners will have to read your book. It's a huge omnibus of new thinking, and so we can only touch on a bit of it. But I loved one of the quotes you had speaking about monoculture. Vandana Shiva said, that um, monoculture create, monoculture crops create a monoculture of the mind. And then you interviewed someone up in the Kimberley who said, oh, the thinking that got us in the shit won't get us out of it. And so I reckon we need to just say what this new thinking is. It's much bigger than just techniques, isn't it? You had a whole philosophy change. So just give us a little bit well, of yeah, that. But-
2: and you put your finger on it. It's 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 all about worldviews and paradigms. And uh, you know, my experience, I had to take over the farm at 22. I was inducted into an industrial paradigm because I asked the best advice around, which was industrial. And I proceeded to make mistakes, and then realised I was wrong. Um, so that, that that's the power of of the mind and how you're trained. And that's why it takes a mind cracker to shift. Um, I guess. My journey of making mistakes and then watching other outstanding people and then um, having my own mind cracking, I realised the reason I damaged um, the landscape was both the way I was trained, which then led to me not having any ecological literacy. I could not read my landscape. I didn't know whether it was functioning well or real. And so in teaching now to masters and, and undergrads, and which led to the book, I I sort of evolved a simple method of um, uh, five functions that you can concentrate on to how to read a landscape. And I I built the book around wonderful stories that suit each of those. And, of course, everything's interrelated. So if you get healthy soil, that relates to better water cycle and it's driven by an efficient solar cycle. You know, you mentioned column science. It, Mm. It means having more green on your country, for longer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I guess um, once you have this mind shift, that you go on this open-ended journey, and, and it means you have to start thinking holistically rather than in a reductionist, mechanical mode. So instead of just thinking, "Oh, I'm going to treat soil like some sort of substrate you pour on chemical and extract something."
3: Yeah.
2: The, the, the exciting thing I discovered going back to uni after forty years, forty odd years, and uh, the new thinking in ecology and complex systems is this idea of, of natural systems have a capacity to self-organise. And what these... I kept hearing farm, the leading farmers saying, look, my job is to get out of the way of Mother Nature. What they were really saying is my my job is to empower nature to get on with what she's good at, which is self-organise back to complexity and resilience and all that. So it was, uh, it was an exciting sort of... Um, uh, epiphany, if you like. Yeah. That, um, our role is to enhance, enable nature, not dominate her.
1: Yes, yeah, so I get this message from other people too, coming from other angles. And you mentioned the different systems, and one of them is water. And uh, William Ripple, who we interviewed a few, quite a few years ago, and people about the water, the hydration, and <clears throat> I've been speaking recently to be about people adapting to floods because that's one of the main aspects of climate change affecting say Bangladesh or Holland and we've had people on here talking about sponge cities you know so that they can absorb some of the water slow it down and and work with nature they use the same phrase work with nature don't block it but you've mentioned something called soil carbon sponges and soil reservoirs now I haven't heard of that before can you explain um, how that works?
4: Yeah, look, I guess I, I work with
2: an, old, um, uh, an Aboriginal elder up here, senior lawman, and uh, he's, he's got um, oral history and memory going back to before white settlement. And some of the stories he's told me, and reading early explorers and stuff, I, I realised that whether it's Victoria or here or wherever, our landscapes today are nothing like they were when the first settlers arrived. When the first settlers arrived. We had hydrated landscapes, lots of mists and fogs, the ground was spongy. You know, you hear settlers, early explorer descriptions of horses stumbling as if they were stumbling over bales of hay. The ground was that soft and absorbent. And what overgrazing and cropping and belting the landscape has done is is we've got rid of the perennial plants and the deep root uh, absorbent functions, etc. We've got rid of the healthy soil, which means better air spaces and, and absorbency. And we've so dried the country, it's now hard and the water runs off. And it changed the whole water cycle and you're connected with everything else. So it's a profound shift. Um, but I guess I'm not too sure how much time we've got, but I, I really should mention that by killing our soils industrially, um, aside from what we do with industrial food processing and stuff, we've, we've, we've actually stripped out the healthy nutrients in our grasslands, if you're talking about healthy meat, or in our crops and vegetables and fruits and stuff, um, through combination of breeding for industrial production and then pouring on chemicals and fertiliser. Mm. totally changed both the nutrients that are being accessed because you, your healthy soil biology isn't accessing the nutrients, so you've got plants dependent on drugs. And, and so a lot of the linkage to modern he- diseases, and that's apart from the big really big issue of Roundup or glyphosate but a lot of our modern diseases are due to key nutrients missing that are essential for our immune and physiological function.
1: Look, just the other day, someone, the least likely person, I thought, said to me, he started talking to me about his gut flora and about how he was going to try a vegetarian diet. And I thought, this is the most unlikely person. He would not have previously been reading books like your book, for example. And I thought, isn't this interesting how ideas catch on? So people are worried about their health and that may be a way in. And I advise anyone listening to this to read Charles's book called call of the reed warbler because there's loads of ideas about that in it now just the last question then there's a lot in your book about all of those you know pesticides herbicides synthetic fertilizers and antibiotics but i think the worst crime you know that the big agribusiness does is land clearing just when we need to get more you know vegetation on the land um, the agribusiness, are, are, you know, clearing, especially in Queensland, clearing huge amounts of land for more livestock. And I think, uh, we, you know, they say, oh, well, we we haven't got an option. We, we need to double the food production for the growing demand. How do you answer that when they say, oh, you know, we're providing food for the world?
2: Well, it, it's pretty easy to answer. Um, just on that, if we... Australia's not far behind Brazil and Indonesia. If we stopped land clearing, and they did too, uh, we'd cut out 20% of our carbon emissions straight away. On the food side, look, the big end of town puts this... And I mean the big multinationals um, that are promulgating um, industrial ag, that put this around that we need all their chemicals and fertilisers. Um, the latest information out of the FAO, United Nations Food and Agricultural Organisation is that between 70 and 80% of the world's food comes off peasant farms of five acres and less. And most of that is grown on healthy soil. And uh, then if you add up a slightly bigger farm, well over the 80% comes off those smaller acreages. And family-owned farms, and and many of them are run by women. Uh, If you then add in that we're wasting about 30% of the food we produce, and I've seen you know, quite a number of uh, reputable scientists estimating we could, we could feed 10 or 11 billion now if we had to. Mm. So that's a complete furphy. Mm. But I, I just want to pick up the final point that we, we were alluding to before about the gut flora. The, the world's most used herbicide, glyphosate or Roundup, is this is a huge issue. The evidence is mounting and mounting, that it's penetrating all our bodies and our groundwater and our surface water because it's water-soluble. It's targeting our immune function in our gut and being water soluble, it's, it's breaching the, the really important health barriers of our gut lining and our blood brain barrier. And um, it's highly correlated now with all the modern diseases, it's, it's, it's a huge issue and there's quite a bit now coming out to expose it. So I just we should have that on our radar as well.
1: Definitely. All right. Well, thank you very much. We've been listening to Charles Massey and readers. Listeners become readers, I hope. Um, the book Call of the Reed Warbler, it's in your library. It should be still in the bookshops. It was launched, I think, at the end of last year. He's a very good writer and he interviews all the regenerative farmers. And as he said, climate change is not the only tipping point. There's all these other um, systems that are Crumbling, and uh, he's got the path forward (laughs) how to to restore nature. So, thank you, Sir Charles, very much.
2: Uh, Thanks very much, Vivian, much appreciated.
1: Bye bye. All right, now after the break, we're going to hear from Professor Richard Eckard.
0: Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR, being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 9419
3: 8377.
1: Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Now we're going to speak to Professor Richard Eckard. He's the Director of the Primary Industries Climate Challenges Centre at Melbourne University. Now, I did do an interview with him at Melbourne University, which was excellent. But just as I was leaving, I was at the door. We started talking about the drought, and I wanted to follow that up more urgently because the drought is really affecting everybody. (coughs) So welcome, Richard. Richard. Hi, how are you? How are you I'm very good, and thanks for doing a second interview with me. You've given me quite a bit of your time, and I think I was on a bit of a learning curve the first time you talked to me. I, you said so many things I hadn't heard of before that I really want to follow up now. So just to begin with, how is it where you are?
4: Well, it's uh, reasonably wet and raining, but then I'm up in the uh, Dandenong Mountains, uh, not in western New South Wales. I think it's quite different. Uh-huh. Down to the divide, as opposed to north of the divide.
1: Yes, well, the last listener has—he said he has minus ten degrees in the in the morning. Look, as the dams are drying up and farmers have to um, feed their cattle by hand, the headline today was uh, a terrible headline. I thought <coughs> New South Wales farmer to shoot starving flock because he can't afford to feed them. There's a picture of him with little lamb it's about a family west of Gunada. I wonder what's your first reaction when you read these stories, they're quite common. Yeah.
0: Look, uh, it's
4: pretty clear that, um, you know, to start with, uh, Australia as a continent is about 25% more variable climatically than the next nearest continent, which is southern Africa, which is more variable than anywhere else as well. Um, So, you know, climate variability we live with, um, and that's It's well established we've had droughts going back a long time, Federation droughts, which is well documented. Um, I I guess where where things start getting complicated is where you've got an underlying signal of climate change sitting underneath um, what might already be a bad drought. And that's where things get complicated.
1: Well... I, I'm wondering, uh, do you think that... Um, <clears throat> I have another question to ask you, but um, we've been hearing from Charles Massey about diversified regenerative agriculture, but I'm wondering how farmers can diversify in that sort of low rainfall region, you know, west of Gunnedah, and do you think that if those people would be getting drought relief, should it be tied to some help with changing the way they farm? Yeah, you
0: know,
4: that that, that that's uh, a fairly um mature conversation already in policy circles i mean i've i've been around some of those conversations for over 20 years now where um the discussion is uh should it be just drought relief which i, I you know let me say i i firmly believe that uh you know farmers that are caught out and are struggling um should be helped but but um the conversation is how and um and it might be that uh given Climate change is an added feature or underlying uh, driver underneath some of these droughts that perhaps the, the the best investment is is an investment in a business plan rather than just a drought relief. What I mean by that is that um, government invests in a a plan for the business venture um, that will adjust not only to the uh, um, a subsequent drought that might come along. So how do we drought-proof that business? What fundamental change is required to to prepare that business for a drought? Now, notwithstanding that, you know, when you get a three-year drought, there's very few businesses that can prepare for a three-year drought. I mean, that's just a fact. Hmm. Um, but, but it would be better to invest in a structured plan that said, here is a business plan that has been considered by um, a, a qualified professional that says, this is how this business might actually uh, diversify in the future or might be able to uh, not be as vulnerable in the future or might move from where they are to a, a stocking density that might be able to cope with these or have some trigger points.
1: Yeah, this, is, this word diversify is what I'm interested in. And I'd, I'd like to know, do you think that mixed farming systems are more resilient to climate shocks? And if they are, what what sort of mix could you have in a low rainfall area like that?
4: Look, some of the areas we're talking about uh, are not suitable to cropping. And, and, and so, you know, when you're saying diversify, it might actually be diversifying within a livestock system or an extensive grazing system. Where, where we start talking about diversification in some of the marginal regions that are cropping right now, say, Northwest Victoria, where, you know, it's definitely drying out. Uh, it's not quite as... Um, uh, the number of, of, of crops uh, successful crops there it has probably dropped over the last twenty years um, where we where we think diversification can help there is you bring in a mixed farming system and and this is where wool and and cropping can actually work quite well together because wool is one uh, product that can actually improve in price in a bad year um, so you, you know you're your best two ways by having uh, crop production which in a good year will pay handsomely but then in a dry year um you know a failed crop might actually even help the livestock produce the wool that's required to give you that alternative stream of income so um you know and I, I know we've specialized over the years but um i think what climate change might be suggesting to us is that diversification in agriculture is more resilient
1: yeah well look our other two guests are from family farms on the fertile eastern part of australia And I'd like you to present us with the contrast, especially because you've been to the Northern Territory and the northern places where there's rangeland farming and most of us haven't seen it. Um, Pastoral companies, you know, millions of acres and all of that. Could you um, describe the conditions um, that they're operating under and whether the pastoral leases could be made more um, climate-friendly? It's again that thing of should there be conditions on the pastoral lease to protect the land and the climate?
0: Look,
4: some of the pastoral leases, um, they they have another form of diversity, um, and that is they a number of the larger companies own multiple properties. And as a result, they're able to actually move assets between properties. Um, they're able to phone each other and say, what's the rainfall like, what's the forage like, can we move some stock between us? Um, and so another form of diversity emerges there where you have the ability to move your livestock out of drought zones into areas that have had rain. So um, I think that's actually a strength uh, um, of some of those systems um, that perhaps a, a family farm doesn't have that that, um, that privilege or the benefit. Um, we have seen some um, moving stock between um, colleagues, um, you know, farmers, the family, family friends, and uh, you know, ability to move stock around the country, creating that that ability to diversify. And so maybe the solution's not always offloading your animals, which. You know, it takes a long time to rebuild the stock numbers. Um, And, uh, you know, the the, uh, lag effect of uploading stock is quite big on the business. Um, But the ability to move them between... Uh, between properties could be part of part of the asset.
1: I'm thinking really of the Beyond Zero Emissions land report, which did suggest that we should take some pressure off the land, that we should destock our national herd to some extent. Not completely, but not extend it and expand it and keep clearing more land to put more cattle out there. And yet I'm wondering what would create that change, whether you agree with it or not. But if that was the, the aim, to to reduce the pressure on the land do you think there would be levers in, um, in these big companies, which are businesses that are owned by companies which have shareholders overseas? I wonder if those people are starting to put demands on them for emission reductions. Would that be a, a, a way that this is going to happen?
4: Certainly the, um, the large corporates that would have um, international shareholders or shareholders sitting in a boardroom in London um, would be having that accountability uh, for their footprint, uh, as well as their animal welfare standards and that 's why we see them interested in things like the carbon
1: think oh, I think we 've lost our we 've lost professor Eckhart um, we 're going to have another guest in a moment i 'm sorry i don 't know how that happened. we just were cut off. Sorry, Professor Eckhard. Um I don't think we'll get him back. Andy, will we?
3: Uh, I can try if you like.
1: Yeah, have a try. Do you want me to? Yes, just have a try. But uh, meanwhile, I'll just say to you listeners the last question that um, I was going to ask him. This is Perhaps you might have read it in The Age the other day. This is important because listeners to this show will know a lot about renewable energy and the National Energy Guarantee, and there's been quite a bit of a discussion in the paper where the National Farmers Federation is saying, I think they're panicking, they're saying, well, we can't carry the burden of lowering emissions. It should be the electricity sector. It's easy for them. It's um, more centralised. They can do it. But for us, it's too expensive, and we've already cut down a lot. Um, There was an article by Nicole Hashem in The Age on Friday. You might like to look it up in the National Farmers Federation not coming out and saying... We don't want the neg, but they were pretty much saying, "Well, if the neg is going to have such a small ambition, well, we're not going to, t- we don't want to take up the uh, slack." So I thought that was quite an interesting new tension, and um, I was going to ask Professor um, Eckard has, um, um, you know, if they have taken significant steps to reduce their carbon f- footprint, could he tell us what they've done and what more they can do? And I think he's just there. Uh, hello, Richard. I'm very sorry we were cut off there. I was just saying to the listeners, the um, National Farmers Federation is starting to panic. I think that they might have to do more heavy lifting if the National Energy Guarantee doesn't work. What do you think? Uh, do you think that the farming sector has already made significant reductions, as
4: they say? Reductions in in greenhouse gases. Yes. You're referring. To. Yep. Yep. Um, Look, you know, I think there's there's an issue here where um, the investment in the basic research has not been completed yet. Um, I I think there's certainly been adoption of reductions in emissions intensity within the industry, deliberately trying to uh, reduce their footprint relative to production. But um, uh, to be honest, right now, we can't give a cattle property in Northern Australia, we can't give them a technology that will allow them to radically reduce their, their methane from their herd right now. We, we are fairly confident that that exists in research. But um, if you think of some of these problems, um, the, these wicked problems in particular, um, a, a, a beef product producer in Western Queensland probably only found out that methane was a greenhouse gas about 10 years ago maximum. And the maximum time from research to adoption in agriculture is usually 15 to 20 years. Um, So, uh, you know, I I think that problem is one that sits with the global research community right now to urgently come up with a solution uh, to to dramatically reduce reduce greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture generally, from fertilisers, from soil carbon loss, from livestock. Um, And I think if the farmers are given the right tools and the right signal, you'll see a big change. Yes, all
1: right. Well, I had another question to you about deforestation for more um, cattle for the Asian market, but I think we'll, we covered that in our earlier interview, which I will broadcast later next month. So thank you very much for doing two interviews with me and giving us your ideas. Thanks very much, Richard. Great,
4: thank you.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, so that was that was good, Andy. Andy's like a sort of (laughs) one of those baseballers. Always
0: keep me on my toes, (laughs) really. It
1: really is like a baseballer catching the ball that goes way beyond. Um, So, uh, look, the next person is uh, Michael Taylor. Do we have time for a little tiny bit of music, Andy? And then we'll talk to Michael Taylor.
3: No worries. To keep you company when you're alone. Oh, did you want to have it near you? To cheer you up with a song or little cheeping. Look, what a beautiful bird. Oh, what a fun little thing to have near you. You must be really me to keep that bird from flying. You must be an enormous bastard to stop the bird from trying to be a bird.
1: Welcome back. To uh, the Beyond Zero Emission show. And who was that Andy Rose Turtle Oetler,
3: was it? That's right. This song was Bird.
1: Thank you. So now we're going to speak to Michael Taylor. He's the sixth generation member of a farming family um, up in New England and their property is called The Hill. His parents, John and Vicky, were catapulted into becoming national leaders, according to Charles Massey in his book, Call of the Red Warbler, because of the great New England eucalypt dieback. Now, I'm ashamed to say I'd never heard of this, but apparently it was of world significance. It was massive. And uh, there were massive attacks of Christmas beetles being the final insult to the trees. And I'd like Michael to tell us this story and also about how he and his French wife, Millie, are taking the farm into the future. So welcome, Michael. Can you start by describing your place now in wintertime?
0: <laughs> well, I've actually just come back from overseas, so it's looking extremely brown. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... But we've got a lot of trees on the on the farm here and uh so there's there's still quite a bit of green. And um that's that's uh mostly the doing of my my parents but um I guess it's, it's going back further my grandfather had already started doing a lot of tree planting here. Yeah. Um, when uh when it was noticed that there was uh you know, a, a significant decline in in uh, in tree cover that um, that was you know leading to a lack of shelter for for animals and um, and um, you know it can get pretty pretty cold and miserable up here yeah. on a uh, on, on a winter's day. When, oh,
1: imagine when, for know. lambs, it'd be intolerable. <laughs> you know, it's, no,
0: it's actually very no similar trees. in some ways to. Um, to where Charlie Matthews is from on the uh, yeah. on the Monaro Plain. Mm. <laughs> Anybody that's been up there during the during winter, maybe skiing or something, yeah, out across that plain. Listen,
1: what caused the eucalypt dieback? Did it have something to do with overstocking?
0: Um, it it was caused by it was caused by a whole range of a whole range of things.
1: Superphosphate,
0: chemical fertilisers in particular, how much damage was was being done so really from from that period on there'd been there'd already been done a, a lot of a lot of clearing and uh, looking back in the family history there's From there on, it was a, a downward spiral, and then going into the, you know, seventies, eighties, even. Um, there was a lot of trees dying from from the combination of um, uh, the beetles and, you know, and then and then dry years, leaving those unhealthy trees, sick trees, vulnerable to to dry. And um, um, there was a lot of a lot of dead timber <laughs> around, and my and the thing at the time and you still see it now even was to, you know, Cut push up down. all the dead timber and burn <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. And um it just it just left the the, the uh yeah, the ecosystem. Out of
1: balance and, oh, uh, yes we've had we've had uh, David Lindenmeyer on this program telling us about tree hollows, and I never really knew that and He he "Oh, it takes over a hundred years for a good tree hollow to develop and even those right. dead trees you can have a reptile could stay in there or you know animals nest in there and its, it's necessary to leave them up and I'd never known that
0: but so sorry, you know, well we have a lot of a lot of international visitors and they often they often comment on all the all the dead trees and and uh, why are there so many dead trees in the Australian landscape? And Well, actually, the, a lot of the eucalypts live half their life as a live tree and the other half as a... Dead tree,
1: you still doing an ecosystem <laughs> service.
0: Animals have evolved that way, haven't they?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Well, look. Some people say you can only regenerate land with native plants, but your parents tried lots of different trees to reforest their property, and I think they planted nearly half a million trees altogether. Um, how did they do that?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I guess again in the in the nineteen eighties was it was when my parents really noticed. And my mother's side came from a line of, of, of uh, gardening enthusiasts. stage and, and you were looking at three to four dollars a tree as compared mm. to ten fifteen cents. And, well, yeah. Could
1: I excuse me, Michael, I would like to read a little bit of Charles Massey's book, Call of the Reed Warbler. It's yep. page two seventy five where he describes your place and he's yep. sitting up on a hill. And I'd love that because he said yeah, I'll just quote from yep. him below me I could barely see open paddocks. The lazy S of contour, winding tree uh, tree breaks composed of mixed species seemed to merge into one forest. Mist rose off the rehydrated lower uh, country but most impressive was a cacophony of bird song flycatchers, fantails honey eaters, wood swallows and whistlers. Truly here was a whole squadron of unpaid, pest controlling pollinating and fertilising helpers, willingly on the job. So that Gives listeners a description of that yeah. place, and it's I think the mix isn't, isn't it beautiful, <laughs> and the mixture of things, and the fact that you attracted so many birds back there, and and I imagine all sorts of wildlife.
0: Yeah, I think look, they, the 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 initial desperation for shelter um, wasn't uh, that the idea of having being able to plant other trees it was definitely in the back of my parents' mind, and they would have in any other time probably. Maybe in another landscape, would definitely have been replanting natives. Mm. But um, but uh, um, the potential—I mean, again, you know—you you have to make have to be thinking a, a long way ahead and and um, about the potential uh, production benefits of whatever you're doing, and um, that getting shelter was the was the most important thing in being able to save the, the sheep and um reduce you know evaporation rates across the the landscape but um as as my parents have gone, they have you know planted a huge range of different species of of trees, including a lot of natives that are from from out of this area mm. but um um yeah, what I'd like I to think...
1: know, also, Michael, is how do the livestock fit into this? Is it it's called agroforestry, but does that mean that the cattle and or sheep kind of graze between these avenues of trees?
0: Yeah, but originally, I, I think Charlie talks about that too. You know, the the uh, tree planting designs evolved from along fence lines and on tops of hills, and to where the shelter was was most desperately needed. But um, but essentially, the the, the not many large, just single blocks of, of trees on the on the place that that eliminate pasture altogether, because the pasture is is our main form of income. So nurturing the the pasture is 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 our primary uh, uh, goal, and um, that evolved into to contour plantings and uh, or engineered woodlands, as they're they're now called, which which Came from again from um, ideas that that go a long way back, but uh, they'd got got the idea originally here from Ron Watkins in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Charlie also I think went sore but uh, Ron had suggested you know planting on the on the contour, and my parents developed that to, to suit, and and uh, that sort of went along the lines of what Yeomans that that P A Yeomans had, had uh, developed in his key line system mm-hmm. but again it, it was just adapted to to this landscape and it's been readapted <laughs> many many places over and when i was flying across the country the other day coming from from uh from asia you could actually see a, a lot of a lot of other farms that had that had done similar things either they cleared uh trees in a way that that opened up pasture but but kept trees in the landscape and um for us, yeah, planting the pines, was the, the poten- potential for timber production was there, but they were constantly planting other species that would yep. be left behind as, uh, as uh, shelter species into the future and, and also shrubs, shrub species.
1: Yeah, well that's what, I mean, I'm really glad to hear that other people are copying this and I know you farmers sort of network among yourself, it's probably a bit under the radar of the mainstream knowledge about what's going on in agriculture because if you just drive around or I go around by train and it looks like there's huge paddocks with one tree sometimes or hardly, or trees down the side but not this kind of really considered um, silvy pasture sort of thing and I I loved hearing about it and I'm really glad more people are doing but are you getting any recognition for the carbon sequestered on your property and and does planting so many trees cut down the profitability because I think a lot of people would think oh, we're not going to plant trees all over the place we've got to plant our crop <laughs> Yeah,
0: I think it's still um, um Challenging uh, to to get the message across that you can you can have you know quite a large uh, amount of percentage of your property under trees and still um, still be producing as much pasture. Um, look, it varies it varies between different uh, different landscapes, but um, but generally you know up to thirty, maybe some in some cases down to between percent and maybe up to forty or fifty percent you can you can be sti- still producing as much pasture as as uh, without uh without the trees or maybe even uh, producing pasture for more of the year with with the trees because you're getting shelter from frost
1: and mm. from
0: drying winds but
1: what I about the carbon um, sequestered do you get uh, carbon credits for any of that
0: uh we we uh have been down that path but we can't. We can't get any carbon credits because uh, there's too many exotic species mixed in with oh our
3: goodness.
0: our natives, and which is funny because um, and the Queensland University, Southern Cross University, did a uh, uh, a, a carbon sequestration study on on, oh. on our property back in uh, 19, 1992, and um, um, we we're able to. To show how much carbon was being sequestered in in, uh, mm. in plantation plantations um, on the farm here, but uh, but yeah, look, uh, carbon sequestration really isn't uh, uh, an, a major interest of mine anymore because um, if you're if you're uh, maximising the production of your pastures, you're um, you're maximising the amount of uh, you know, carbon that you're you're storing in the in the soil, and that's that's um, it's a it's a very hard. I don't think the science is quite there yet in terms of um, trying to <laughs> make money out of sequestering
1: oh, carbon. No it's not but and I've interviewed a few people who who you know feverishly putting in trees but they're not getting anything back as carbon farmers yet but I honestly I'd just like to thank you personally for doing that sequestration because I value that and I and, and anyone listening to this program because it's a climate change program that, that they will value that and I just loved it I'm sorry I'm going to have to finish now but I could talk to you for hours it's it's <laughs> very, it's very nice to hear about it and to to bring a breath of the country air into the massive city I mean, they say Melbourne's going to end up with eight million people. Can you imagine that? And so, we we have nothing like what you're looking out at. You know.
0: <laughs> no, look, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of farmers out there doing, trying to do the, yeah. the right thing. That's and, the great um, news. Um, the science is there. It's just it's just uh, get, getting it out to to the you know the farmers.
1: Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. So that was Michael Taylor from New England. His farm is called The Hill, and he's uh, he and his family are mentioned in the book The Call of the Reed Warbler by Charles Massey, which I really recommend to you listeners. So thanks, Michael. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Oh, so thank you to our guests tonight. We had Michael Taylor, Richard Eckard and Charles Massey. And thank you to the people who introduced me to them and each one of them to each other and so on. I I feel there is a network out here beyond the big city um, of people who are really very active and very energized by the possibilities so thank you to them thank you to andy for doing all that fancy footwork oh, you should have seen
3: oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> don't know whoever it was my fault I'm still i still tried to figure it out no
1: i don't know but when you lose a phone call he dashed out came back oh it was very clever to say and thank you to roger who will do the podcast uh, my name's vivian now Tonight, if you are still able to get down to Melbourne University area, Carlton, it's the Clyde Hotel, corner of Cardigan and Elgin Street. We'll be there. Um, it's uh, well six thirty is the is the start of the trivia night. And maybe if you got there at seven, it would be all right. Um, there's also a petition that I've asked Roger to put on the podcast. So go to bze.org dot org and find the podcast for this show, twenty third of July, and there's a petition there. Um, It's about preserving a wildlife corridor and it concerns big black cockatoos. We were talking about this biodiversity but it's a bit of an abstraction but I really know those cockatoos. I used to work in Maroubra where they used to come. Once a year there'd be this flock of big black cockatoos. They were fabulous. It was like a wonder of the world to see them, really huge. I think normally they live in the Blue Mountains but they come down just once a, a year and if we can stop developers cutting down there's about 150 trees apparently which is where they come and um, that would be a small victory so just go to the uh, podcast page and see the link and, and please just support that I think it's just a petition You can also see Charles Massey talking on a film and it's very nice because he's out on his land and you can see where he lives and he gives more depth to what we were able to cover today. Lastly, congratulations to BZE itself because we won an award. The, um, recently just this week for the best international energy and environment think tank so i didn't know think tanks were in a competition but here we are we we won the best one at the uh, prospect think tank awards and i think it was basically for our um, report on the rethinking cement and that was dedicated to jen bates and i know we had a letter from the ceo uh, vanessa who told us that they've dedicated to Jen Bates because she unfortunately died and her family endowed us with the money to print that report. And so the um, you know the award that we've got as the best international think tank is partly because we're rethinking cement. <coughs> so thank you very much for listening, everybody. We'll go out with a song and please tune in next week. Erin will be with you and then Kurt on the 30th and then we'll be back uh, I'll be back the following week so thank you very much for listening good night To learn new skills and open new career opportunities? Ames Australia is a leading education provider offering government funded courses in general English, aged care, and work skills. Courses start in July, so call 13 26 37 now to sign up today or go to ames.net.au for more information.